So did you catch what the reading said? If you practice these things, you will never fall. That is a weighty statement. And that should be an exciting statement. If you practice these things, you'll never stumble. If you practice these things, you will never fall. That, I believe, would put us all on the edge of our seat. But what exactly is that telling us we're going to be able to do? To know that we would never fall. That we would never stumble. Here is Peter giving this wonderful confidence that God wants us to know where we stand when it comes to eternity. That God has not put us on this earth to wonder, well, I don't know if we're going to make it or not. I don't know if I should have any assurance of salvation. I don't know how it's going to go for me if God were to come today. I have no idea how that would play out. I want you to notice that what God intends for us to have is a confidence regarding our election to be able to say, if you practice these things, you will not fall. What a great way that the Apostle Peter then opens this book in trying to confirm that for us. In fact, you'll notice that he says that also in verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Again, a picture of security. And so that's kind of the double title. The paper is you will never fall. and The screen is a place to stand. So that's the answer right there, is that this is the place we're supposed to stand. This is great hope that is given to us that we would never fall. So now let's, that being the idea, we'll come back to this verse at the very end of the lesson. Let's now get the context and see what the Apostle Peter is saying about that. So back up now in 2 Peter in chapter 1 and begin in verse 3. 2 Peter 1 verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life, and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's begin with what a beautiful and powerful picture that is given to us. That God wants us to know that we can stand. That we are able to have this hope, this confidence, this calling that is given to us. I suppose that there's a tendency 
for, for those of us to sometimes wonder about that, to be concerned about that. And you have to love how many times that the Scriptures will give us these pictures where what God is trying to tell us is, here is the grounding for your hope. Here is where I want you to place your anchor. Here is where I want you to stand. In all of these passages, like 1 Peter 5 and verse 12, here you have the Apostle Peter giving us a a similar image and saying, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I want you to plant yourself on the grace of God. I want you to be able to stand in that, to have confidence in it, to build your hope in that. That's what Peter's doing in the second letter as well. You see that in 1 John 5 and verse 13 where we talked about that this morning as the ending of this letter that I want you to know that you have eternal life. Over and over again, God is giving us these indicators, these places to stand so that we can know where we stand before God and a confidence that we can have in our salvation. Now, in thinking about what the Apostle Peter then says here, you'll notice that he begins by telling us in verse 5 that for this reason, I want you to make every effort to supplement your faith. And I just want you to think about that idea for a moment. That there is a picture here that faith needs to grow. That faith is not sufficient just to say, now, here's what I want you to stand in. Have faith. Okay, done, period. Let's go home. We have faith. We're good. Notice that he says, I want you to make every effort to supplement your faith. That that Greek word under it is really, I think, a, a fascinating picture because it is the idea that's given there of providing a necessary support. Uh, some translations use the word add, and that kind of doesn't quite capture the whole idea of it, but it is giving an idea of faith is going to be like this foundation, this bedrock, and on top of it is going to be growing these other things. And faith then needs supplementing. Faith needs growth. Faith needs nutrients. Faith needs watering. And I want you to kind of picture faith that way as we go through the lesson here tonight. Is that faith by itself is given a picture of it would just simply be choked out. That you would picture faith in like a plant. And I'm terrible with plants. If I try to grow plants, they die. We've just given up on ever owning a live plant in our house. They never survive. They never make it. They just I don't know what we do to it. We're clearly cursed with the opposite of a green thumb and kill anything that ever comes into the house that's a plant. The idea here is, is very similar. Faith is like a plant. And unless you give it the proper care, the proper nourishment, the proper nutrients, the proper watering. Faith isn't going to work. And so that's what he's giving us here in verse 5. For this reason, because of the blessings that we have of what God has given to us by His divine power, so that we can be partakers of the divine nature, I want you to make every effort to supplement your faith, to grow your faith, to provide the necessary support that our faith requires. 
Now notice you have a listing here of all the different things that are described. My translation using the ESV says virtue. Virtue is hard for us. It's kind of nebulous uh, in our mind. Some translations use the word moral goodness. And that maybe helps a little bit better in trying to get across the idea. Is that what we need to add to the faith is moral goodness. But as you think about this, I want to think about this from the opposite direction. That what Peter is telling us is that if we do not add moral goodness, this virtue to our faith, what's going to happen to faith? It's going to get choked out. It's not going to grow. It's going to become strained. It's going to be like plants that come into my house. It's going to die. If you do not add these various qualities and characteristics, that what we are doing is we are destroying faith. We are killing the faith that we have. So what Peter is doing is presenting to us something that I think is very important, that we would recognize that sometimes we have this, why is my faith weak? Why am I struggling with faith? Why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? And I want you to think about these characteristics that we're going to look at tonight. That what Peter is saying is if we are not paying careful attention to adding these qualities to our faith in a way that we would add nutrients and water and nourishment and care like to a plant, faith cannot survive. It is absolutely impossible for faith to survive. So the idea of moral goodness I think helps them. Because when you think about moral goodness, what the idea then behind that would be is just simply keeping out of the things that are worldly. Staying away from the things that would drain our faith, that we would be consumed by worldliness or sexuality, wealth, possessions, that faith is destroyed in that kind of atmosphere. You know, sometimes our approach toward God, especially when it comes to moral goodness, is that we think of God in terms of just the rules. Do this and don't do that. So just do all these good things. Here's the list of all the things that God has said. Just do those good things. Here's all the bad things that God says. Don't do any of those bad things. And sometimes we even teach it to our kids that way. Here's the do's and the don'ts. Do the good things. Don't do the bad things. And then there you go. And I want you to see that it is way deeper than that that God is describing here for us. Why would we want to avoid worldliness? Avoid materialism? Avoid sinful sexuality? Avoid the things that are going to do those things that are worldly in our mind and our hearts? Why is that so important to do what is morally right and morally good? What Peter is saying is, because if you don't, you're killing your faith. If you don't, you are destroying faith. You're choking it out. We should never present what God has said to us of why we do what we do and why we do what is morally good and virtuous as just something, well, it's just stuff you have to do. Or, well, God just said that's a sin and so we don't do it because that's a sin and that's the reason. As if there's nothing underneath it. As if there's no reasoning behind it. You'll notice that Peter's giving giving us a reasoning. When we allow ourselves to gauge in worldly conduct and we're involved in things that are not pure and not right and not holy and not good, we're destroying faith. And I submit to you that might be one of the main reasons why faith often struggles in this life. 
is because what we do is we have allowed ourselves to look at God's Word as just simply rule following, do's and don'ts, okay, adultery's bad, telling the truth is good, rather than recognizing the reason why you and I need to make good moral decisions is because that's going to help your faith, that's going to help my faith. The reason why we need to abstain from the things of the world and the lusts of the flesh and things like that is because that's what's good for your faith. That's what builds faith. Those right decisions and abstaining from wrong, that's what's going to help your faith to grow. It's not just merely a do and do not. But what God is giving us are these things so that we would recognize that faith becomes stronger in those decisions that we make. So often you have a picture given by Jesus in parables or the Apostle Paul in some of his letters that warn us about how the cares of the world and how riches choke out the Word. And that's the idea of what Peter's getting at here is if you are not adding a moral goodness, a virtue, a a devotion in your life to choose to do what God says... Your faith will never survive. There is no way for us to come here, get kind of our spiritual shot, and then go out into the world on Monday through Friday and have no regard for moral goodness and think that we're going to have any kind of strength of faith by the next week. It can't happen. That's what he's saying. Your faith needs supplementing. It needs grounding. It needs nutrients. It needs water and growing. And you will grow it by making those right decisions. That's what will strengthen faith, number one. Number two, he gives not only the picture of moral goodness, but he describes here knowledge. Faith simply cannot grow without knowing God. I think I spent an awful lot of time on that this morning, so I won't go crazy about that here tonight. But I, I again contend how critically important it is that our perception of this journey with God is again not just simply do this and do that, but this is about coming to know God. Faith cannot grow if we do not know who God is, if we do not have the kind of relationship that Jesus described and say, I know my sheep and they know me just like I know the Father and the Father knows me. There is a depth of relationship that is needed for faith to grow. Faith is never going to flourish. Faith is never going to grow if we do not come to know God. And the obvious way that we come to know God is through the Word. If you grew up in the pews, you were made to memorize this one. Faith comes by hearing what? The Word of Christ. That's the only way faith comes. That's how you're going to obtain it. Faith doesn't come any other way. Faith will not come through any other avenue or any other activity. It will only come through the Word of God and coming to know it. Which then I think leads us to an important question to consider for ourselves. So then, how much watering of our faith do we do with the Word of God? Do we do like I do with my plant and sometimes remember to water it? And then completely forget 
We often do that with our faith. So we go on in the busyness of our schedules and the things that are chaotic in life and we wonder why we're struggling and faith is weakening and we're having a hard time. But when was the last time we were allowing the Word of God to grow our faith? To bolster us and strengthen us. That's why I wanted to bring those little Bibles with you that you can fold in your pocket. You need that. <laughs> it's our boost in the arm to get through the day, morning, noon, and night. It's the Word of God that gives faith. How much attention do we give to that? I submit to you if your faith is challenged and you're having a hard time that you would consider this possibility that Peter gives. How much do we know God? How much do we spend in coming to know Him and reading God's Word in that pursuit of wanting to know who He is? Our faith needs to be supplied regularly, deeply, and consistently with the Word of God. Number three, I think this one is particularly interesting to think about. He says, our faith needs to be supplemented with self-control. I don't know that I would ever thought of that. I, I think I would have understood, all right, faith needs knowledge of God. I, okay, makes sense. Got it. Faith needs moral goodness. That makes sense to me too. Faith needs self-control, he says. I don't know that I would have come up with that one. Uh, that one doesn't seem quite as logical to me, but how important it is. Here Peter says that we need self-control. Without self-control, our faith is going to suffer. Our faith is going to die. And essentially, a life without restraint is going to destroy faith. Choosing to do whatever we want to do Doing whatever seems best, whatever feels right, whatever is comfortable to us. Peter says, you will destroy your faith if you live that way. You must possess self-control. Or to put this another way, we need to be able to tell ourselves no. We live in a culture right now that that is probably one of the worst things you could ever say. To ever tell yourself no. Don't do what your desires say to do. Well, how dare you ever? You know, that is probably just the most self-abuse you could probably lay on yourself and to tell yourself no to something. And yet that's exactly what God says. You're going to have these desires. You're going to have these wants and wishes. And you have to possess self-control. You have to say no. Friends, that's why it's very important that we teach our kids that too. Parents, teach your kids you don't always get what you want. You have to learn self-control and say no. It's interesting to watch the generations come up now and you know, here they are flying off the rails and people throw their hands in the air and wonder, what happened? Why are all these kids off the rails? And I think the answer is the rails were never put down. We just said, do whatever you want. Whatever makes you happy. Whatever feels best. Let them express themselves. Let them just be whatever they want to be. Well, guess what? You live your life that way. Peter says that's a disaster for faith. Self-control is absolutely required. When we do whatever we want to do and we get our way and we do what we want... Faith absolutely suffers. That is certainly the history that you see of the people of Israel as they got, come from, from Egypt and tried to make their way to the promised land. 
They just want their desires met. God, just be there for us and do what we want. Just give us the blank check, feed us, give us water, whatever we want. And they all perish in the wilderness, but too. Self-control is required in faith. To be willing to tell ourselves no. But that's actually for our good. It's funny, we seem to understand that in the food world. That might be the only way we understand that in our society. (laughs) If you don't say no to food at some point, you're really going to hurt yourself. If you do not say no to the desires of the flesh, you will hurt yourself spiritually. You will destroy faith. Number four. He also then goes on to say that we would add not only to our faith moral goodness and and knowledge and self-control, but he says steadfastness, or another word is endurance. Faith needs endurance. I know that makes sense because I think if you've been a Christian long enough, you've experienced how faith will be tested persistently. Faith is always going to be tested. And I want you to think about how God always expresses why we have suffering and why we have trials, why there is evil, why all these difficulties exist. God has a consistent answer to that over and over and over again. His consistent answer is, we need that so that we can grow faith. Faith needs to be tested. You know, if you think of the sum of the cosmos, God could have said, all right, here's Adam and Eve. Satan causes them to sin. All right, curses are born out. And Satan in chapter 4 of Genesis is dealt with and thrown into the, the pit of fire. And boom, done. He's, he, it's all accomplished. Why doesn't God deal with him right out of the gate? Why let him go on? Well, you have James. Count it all joy because you know the testing of your faith is producing all of these things. Here's 1 Peter 1. He starts talking about testing the genuineness of your faith to be purified and proven. Over and over again, God says, I'm going to allow these things to go on in this world. The things are going to go off the rails quite a bit when it comes to suffering and pain and difficulty. But there's a reason why. Faith needs testing. Faith over and over again needs testing. And God proves that again and again. Why does God come to Abraham and say, all right, go take up your son and offer him up on the altar? You read it very carefully there at the end of that trial scene where it says where God says now I know now I know it's one thing for us to proclaim faith it's one thing for us to believe that our faith will be strong in any circumstance it's another thing to prove it It's one thing to look at the lives of other people, the things they go through, the suffering that they experience, and the the difficulties and the loss, and go, oh, I know I'd make it through that. And that's another thing to walk through it. Faith has to be tested. Faith needs endurance. Faith isn't going to survive without it. When trials come, when difficulty arises, when suffering comes, 
endurance is everything for faith. Be strong in the Lord. Number five, a word that we don't really use often either. After endurance, at the end of verse six, he says, "I want you to add to it, add that to that faith, godliness." The reason why this is difficult is because it's a pretty broad-ranged word, and we don't really use godliness in our phrasing so much today. It's a word that speaks of reverence for God and a life that is devoted loyally to God. It's an idea of devotion. You say godliness, so. Don't think of godliness so much in terms of moral goodness. Think of it as a loyalty to God, a devotion to God, or a reverence to God. That's kind of more the picture that that it's giving us here. And so what faith then needs is that God is a life pursuit. What faith needs is that God would be the everything, the full pursuit of our lives, a devotion to Him, a loyalty to Him, a reverence for Him, that whatever may come, I am going to stay with God and be not only steadfast, but loyal in that. That's one of the beautiful things you see God doing for us. It is so interesting how God calls for us to be loyal to Him. Be devoted to me. And then think about how often people fail at doing that toward God. And yet God will do that toward them back anyway. People of Israel are a great example of that. The loyalty of the people of Israel is terrible. Absolutely terrible. And yet God faithfully stays with them. Again and again and again. It's amazing how often God shows His forgiveness. Lord willing, I don't know what night it is. One of the nights we're going to go to Exodus and and look at one of those pictures of the steadfast love of God, a staggering image. And it's a call for loyalty on our part. God loves us to such a degree. Will we be loyal to Him? And the fact that He stays with us every step of the way. And then the final two, brotherly affection and love. Faith is going to die if we don't love others and we don't love God. That makes sense. If we don't have a love for God and we don't have a love for one another, there will be no faith. Faith is going to be choked out. If we hate each other and we are enemies of one another, have malice feelings toward one another, trying to hurt each other, slander one another, reviling and all kinds of divisions and things like that, there won't be faith. Faith is going to die. Faith will be destroyed in that kind of condition. Must be a love for one another. Must be a love for God. If faith is ever going to grow, faith cannot thrive under those things. Now, I want you to watch what he does with that. Because notice the idea is not just, okay, here are all these qualities. Make sure you have them. I want you to supplement your faith with those things. But notice now the big picture that he lays out with this in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, if these qualities are yours... And they are increasing. Please notice that what, the, what Peter does not say is, so if you will just every once in a while do a few of these qualities here and there, that's going to be good for your faith. Notice that the conclusion that he draws after going through moral goodness and, and love and having all of these great pictures of what our faith needs, he says, now here's what you need to do with that. Not only does your faith need that constantly, just constantly pouring it on, but he says it should be ever increasing. 
I kind of picture that like taking the water spigot and you're constantly opening up the valve every day more and more and more. I want those qualities increasing more and more. If you want faith to be sustained, and you want strong faith, and you want faith to grow, I want you to notice that picture that it, these things are needed for growth. And it should be ever increasing. In fact, I would like to even spin that in the opposite direction for a moment. That what we are learning is that faith doesn't happen by accident. Faith is not going to happen by accident. If you're like me, I've, I grew up in the pews and I've watched seasoned older members have just great faith. People that are role models, people that you emulate. And you might look at them and think, like, faith came to them easy. Look how strong they are. Look at the great spiritual maturity that they possess. And I want us to realize that that faith and that spiritual maturity doesn't come by accident. It didn't just land on them. They weren't born with it. It wasn't just given to them. Here, these qualities were used in their life on a daily basis and were ever-increasing. That's what's being pictured here. If we want a strong faith, there is a path to take and it will not happen by accident. If we want to be what God has called us to be, then these qualities must increase. And notice what he describes in verse 8. That if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. How often does God picture... His desire for His people to bear fruit. In fact, there's a picture of the fruit of the Spirit. I'll talk about that in a little bit later tonight. You have a picture in Isaiah chapter 5 where God describes Israel as this beautiful vineyard that He came and planted. And then God came to this vineyard and looked for His fruit. And all that bore were wild, degenerate vines of the Spirit bad fruit. What does God say? Well, I'm just going to tear it all up. Then Jesus comes along in the New Testament. He tells a parable that sounds an awful lot like that parable. Where he talks about sending servants to a vineyard and trying to receive fruit. And he doesn't receive any fruit. He sends his son. Still no fruit. What will he do? Destroy the vineyard. Give it to another. God is always looking for fruitful people. Notice that's what Peter is doing right here. is saying if we want to be the fruitful people of God, we want to bear these qualities that show our lives as being a follower of Jesus. Notice what he says. Then these things must be what we're adding to faith. That just simply saying we have faith is insufficient, but rather that we would then constantly add these things, supplement these things, build our faith with these things so that faith can flourish and grow. I find verse 9 to be so startling though. I don't want to spend a lot of time with this idea here. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. That is an awfully strong declaration. 
you know, as we were going through this lesson, it seemed like, yeah, this is a really good idea. Okay, faith, we need to add these things, keep them going. All right, you know, water that plant, make it stronger and grow and grow and grow. But then you come to verse 9 where he says, now, if you lack these qualities, moral goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, loyalty, devotion, brotherly kindness, love. He says you're so nearsighted that you're blind, having forgotten that He was cleansed from His former sins. You know, that is such a, a, a powerful, staggering idea. Without these qualities, we can't even see. You, if you don't know me, the only people who would know this truth is probably here in this, this first row up here. I am terribly blind <laughs> without these contacts. Uh, I am extraordinarily nearsighted. Uh, if, if you know numbers, I'm like negative eight in one eye and negative seven in the other eye. Severely nearsighted. I go into the doctor's office and they, you know, take out your contacts. We're going to do the big E is blurry. Okay, I can't see the alarm clock next to my bed. If I have to wake up in the middle of the night and look at it, I have to grab it and go like this be able to see it. If I didn't have my glasses on or contacts and I had to put my head against the paper to do it. So nearsighted that all that I can make out are distinctions in color. That's the only way I can tell anything's there. Is just looking at color distinctions. Everything is blurry. You know for the longest time I had no idea I had a problem. Sometime in early elementary school my dad takes me to a San Diego Padres baseball game. And so we're sitting in the stands somewhere in the upper deck. And dad says, I leaned over to him and I asked him, what does it say on the scoreboard? And he turns to me and goes, you can't read that? (laughs) And I go, no, am I supposed to? How do you know any different unless somebody comes and tells you and says, did you know you can see better than you're actually seeing? You thought all your life that's how everybody sees. No, everybody doesn't see blurry figures all over the place. We need to go get help. That's what the Apostle Peter is describing is that there is a condition by which you can become so nearsighted that you can't see anything, but the problem really ultimately is we think we can see. We think we have faith. We're doing fine. And here the Apostle Peter comes along and says, if we are not growing that faith with these qualities that are ever increasing, he says, you know what you're doing? You have faith forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former sins. You're so blind and you don't even know it. That's why this is such a startling statement that Peter gives right here. If we do not possess these qualities, you're so nearsighted that you are blind. 
You think you can see, but you can't. Think about John 9. Great imagery there of a miracle of here is this man who's born blind, he can't see. Jesus heals him. And the whole miracle ends by talking to these Pharisees, these religious leaders who come up to Jesus and they say, so are you saying that we are blind and can't see? And Jesus goes, yes. Because you think you can see, you are blind. And only those who know they are blind will be able to be made to see. Ends chapter 9 of John. Boom. Well, they didn't like that. Oh no, we can see. We can see clearly. And Jesus goes, you can't see a thing. You don't see anything. Friends, I think we should be very concerned about that truth. That it should be so important to us that Peter is trying to help us see that there is something wrong if we are not desiring to add these qualities to our faith. This is not merely just some good ideas that if you want a stronger faith, here's seven steps to give you stronger faith. That's true. That's how we've presented this so far. If you want greater faith, stronger faith, if you want to know that you will never fall, add these qualities. But please do not ignore the other side of it. If we're not adding these qualities, we don't see. We think we have faith. And we think we see quite clearly. And Peter's walking in and going, no, you don't see at all. You are seeing the big E on the eye chart blurry and you don't even know it. (coughs) Friends, it is so important for us to consider the walk with God that we have. If we find our walk with God boring, if we find it to just be rule-keeping, if it's just do and do not, if it's just obligatory, if it's just simply having to go to church, if it's four hours a week you know, that we're kind of appeasing God in heaven, we just got to get our time in. If Christianity has ever been that way to you in your life, if you've ever just felt it's an obligation, it's just something you have to do, we just do this because hell is going to be a whole lot worse. I'm just going to put it forward to you. We don't see clearly. Loving the Lord your God is way better than that. It is a delight. One of my favorite parables, one of the shortest ones, is that there is this treasure in a field, if you remember. And we often tell the story that the man sells all that he has to buy the field because the treasure's in it, right? But there are two, three words in that parable that we so often miss. The parable is not about, well, he finds a treasure in a field, and so he sacrifices and sells all that he has to go buy that that field so he can have the treasure. That's not it. You know what the thing is? There's three words. In his joy, he sells all that he has and buys the field. You know, the man did not go, boy... That is some amazing treasure. I'm going to have to sell everything that I have? Well, I guess it's a good investment because the alternative is certainly worse. So I suppose 
I ought to buy the field. That's not what God wants. God has never wanted our actions to be out of obligation or duty or responsibility or because we have to. In his joy, he sells all that he has. That's what God's calling us to. That's the hope that is being presented to us. I'm not sure why we miss that so much. It's easy to miss. Husbands, back on Valentine's Day, I know what you did is when you brought, bought your candy or you bought your flowers and you presented that to your wife, you said to them, the reason I've given these things to you is because I knew you'd be mad at me if I didn't, and so I thought I'd go ahead and give them to you because I don't want to sleep on the couch tonight. Boy, there is nothing that is so loving like obligation. You just won her heart, pitter-patter. Oh, I'm just so in love with you because you felt the grand obligation that you had to do this and would be in trouble otherwise. It's not what God wants. How often we come to God that way? Well, He just wants, you know, just, well, we have to. Forget it if that's the way you feel. No, you did it because you want to. That's love. That's what Peter's describing right here. There's such a depth of love for God that I want to add these qualities to my faith. Because I want verse 10 to be true. Therefore, brothers, make be all the more diligent to, con- to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you take these qualities... You just keep adding them to your bed. Every day, turn on that water spigot. Put the nutrients into the thing. Every day, add it, add it, add it. You know what Peter just said? We'll never fall. We have nothing to worry about. We just add that to our faith. Verse 11, For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, the beauty of it is that God has given us everything we need to supply that faith. It's given us everything we need to accomplish the goal that we would never fall, that we would be able to enter into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I encourage you tonight to just simply think about what you can do to devote yourself to make every effort to those qualities. If we are not adding those qualities, Peter says, we have completely forgotten everything that God has done for us. But if we are adding these qualities, he says, you'll never stumble. You'll never fall. But it will be granted to you entrance into the eternity. Do not let your faith wither. Do not let your faith be choked out. Strengthen your faith. Grow your faith. And watch your faith flourish if you allow those conditions to be true. We're going to sing a song. We invite you to come to Jesus.
I invite you to see the beauty of what Jesus has, has, has given. I want you to see the beauty of what He's offering, that you can come to Him and enjoy such a relationship with Him, a depth of relationship that you can know that you have eternal life. You can know it with for certain. What a great hope. No more questions. No more concerns. Add these qualities to your faith know that you're going to be with the Lord for eternity. Can we help you? Won't you come while we stand?